Hi and welcome to another episode of the Foxtails. My name is Ivo and I'm very happy to be back. First of all, Happy New Year's. I hope everybody who listens is healthy and very happy. I'm back full of energy for a lot of episodes this year. We have prepared really cool guests, uh, not only from the music industry, but artists which deserve your attention. I'm starting with someone very special I've been following for a while. That's Stefan Kunze. He's very complex guest as his journey has been through a lot of the different fields of the music industry. He was editor-in-chief for Juice magazine, also a writer for Spex, another leading German music magazine. He has also uh, worked for Red Bull and Spotify as editor. Uh, lately, he is specializing in consultancy for streaming and is helping a major label in their journey of the streaming industry and is running a very cool uh, newsletter called Zen Sounds, which I highly recommend. It has been my source of new music for a while. I'm very, very happy because we get to speak about a lot of different things and he is someone very experienced and has a very cool philosophy to share with you. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we begin, uh, I want to remind you or ask you to share with friends and rate our podcast on the platform of your choice because this really helps us win against the algorithm and be the best music podcast out there. And now I present you my conversation with Stefan Kunze. Sorry, and one last reminder, I want to excuse myself because I had issues with my mic. So the beginning of the podcast is recorded via Zoom. So the sound might be a bit weird, but it gets cleared out after 15 minutes. Anyway, Stefan's microphone was perfect, so that's not going to be a problem anyways. Awesome, Stefan. I'm very, very happy to have you on the podcast. I've known of you for quite some time, and it's great to have uh, somebody with your experience and all the different things uh, you've been doing here on the podcast. So welcome. Uh, usually, I try to start and break the ice with uh, a question like, what is your earliest music memory? Mm-hmm. Earliest music memory, probably going through my parents' record collection. Um, my parents were like music lovers, definitely, and they had a huge vinyl collection. Well, not huge by today's standards, but a lot of vinyl records. And I, as a child, I remember sitting on the on the floor and just going through these records and looking at these covers, especially like the the bit more weird and psychedelic ones, like Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon" is one that I really vividly remember. Uh, a couple of others as well, "Tangerine Dream" and. There was these a lot of like progressive rock and a bit of jazz and folk and blues, but mostly rock music. My parents were really into Roxy music as well, uh, 70s stuff, basically. Did they take you with them uh, when they were buying the vinyls to record stores? No, no. By that time, they already owned most of their collection, I guess. Um, so, no, I didn't really go to record stores with them. I discovered that later by myself, even though like my first records, I bought them with my parents. And then because they I really wanted to buy records. I was very young. I was like eight or nine years old when I wanted to buy my first records. And um, they took me to like these huge shopping centers back then. Uh, really, I grew up in the countryside as well. So there wasn't really a record store around. So we went to these huge shopping centers that had like a small um corner where they had a few vinyl seven inches and i bought seven inches like from the charts basically i've been thinking especially uh, also before our conversation and something which i discussed with friends the role of record store back in the days especially before streaming before even the internet i guess 
I don't know if you're going to agree with me, but the record store owners and the people who are working there were kind of the curators because I know from many friends that sometimes you'd go to the store and ask for a recommendation. Do you think that's still the case these days? I don't know. I, I would definitely agree with your observation that that was the fact back in the days, like when I was growing up. I mean, I'm 45 now, so I, my, my whole youth and record buying days those were mainly in the 90s so record stores were really the hubs where you were meeting other people that were listening to the same records or the same type of music like for example in kiel where, where i grew up i grew up in a small village near kiel but kiel was the closest city they had two or three record shops uh, world of music was one of them and uh, Another one was called Blitz. And I just remember going there and just seeing the other people, like who's buying the metal CDs, who's buying like the the hip hop uh, vinyl, like those these different subcultures, you know, and myself um, just going there and see, uh, talking to the to the clerks and the people and getting recommendations from them was one of my, yeah, I think really important in shaping my musical taste as well. So some of those people you could definitely call curators and Late, I remember a hip hop record shop later in in Kiel that was called Starbeat, and we went there. Like me and my friends, we went there every Thursday when the new releases came out. Thursday was the day. Back then, it was Thursday. I think they he was getting like the the newest white labels from New York and stuff, like in the late nineties. And we were there, and he was holding a few of them back for us because uh, he knew we would definitely buy them. Like all this like rockers and, you know, the underground hip hop from the late 90s. So, yeah, that was really important. I can't say so much about that today. I still like going to record stores, even though I'm not a huge collector anymore. It kind of interferes with, with my philosophy of minimalism because I don't really like to surround myself with things that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit of a, um, yeah, a problem. But I still like going to these places and I kind of miss the community community aspect of those records yeah stores. i can i can agree with with this because we're, we're speaking about rock and uh i know you you studied law uh, if i am correct uh, that's your degree yes was that before or after you started writing for uh specs because specs is for those who listen historically started as a crowd rock magazine so which was first in the timeline of your life. <laughs> so I studied writing while I studied law. It was basically a thing I did on the side, not really to earn money because you didn't really make money writing reviews for magazines. I think you got like, you got lucky when you got like 10 euros for a review or something. Most of the times I got paid in like stuff that the magazines had laying around, like clothing from their sponsors or advertising partners or stuff like that. So it wasn't really a money thing. It was more about me wanting to be part of that cultural discussion and having a voice. And that was in the very early 2000s when I studied law in Hamburg and later in Zurich. And Specs was one of the magazines I was writing for. Uh, Juice was another one, a hip-hop magazine. Specs was more of a like a pop culture magazine, very intellectual. Yeah, I think uh, there was a time definitely when if you had like the album of the months in Specs, then everyone was talking about you. Like that, that was really something that meant something, you know. Um, and Specs was also like a collector's magazine. Re people were really looking to forward to it. And the articles were quite highbrow, I would say. It was quite intellectual in a way, um, like this view on pop culture. And they kind of 
did it in a very scientific, analytical way, a lot of philosophical references and stuff, which I really liked because I thought they were taking the craft and the culture really seriously. And that always appealed to me a lot. Was it easy transition from specs to, to juice or? I think I wrote for juice first and then for specs um, because hip hop was basically my start. This was my, the culture where I was coming from, the music I listened to the most, even though in the 90s I listened to all sorts of stuff from grunge to electronic music to like guitar, even metal. But hip hop was the, the one thing that was really consistent throughout my mm -hmm. whole youth, I would say. So I started writing for juice and then because I, people were reading what I wrote and they were asking me to write for other magazines, mostly about hip hop, but then later also about R&B and soul and funk and jazz. And then from there, it kind of spread out into all sorts of different stuff. I, I remember like even as early as 2005, I wrote large articles about UK culture, like dubstep and similar stuff for specs. And um, back in those days, you were you were able to still fly around a lot, like interviewing people, you know, you were like, you were, I remember still studying law and flying out to Miami to meet Pharrell Williams and interview him. Like for I was going to ask, what is your favorite memory from that time? And I guess that's one of them. Stuff like that. You know, that, that doesn't happen much yeah. anymore, but that like, I still got the tail end of that golden era of music journalism where like it, they were, Basically, record companies were paying for that, right? So they were flying journalists all over the world just to do these interviews. And I probably it was like even crazier in the 90s, which I haven't really uh, witnessed. But yeah, the last few years, I went to New York all the time. I went to London all the time. I, I was in Los Angeles, Houston, Miami, like because those were like the centers for hip hop culture and, and the artists were there. So I, I pretty much got like the the full hood tour if you will <laughs> like I, I saw you know where those people were coming from like the rappers and the producers and they showed me like their surroundings and that was a a, a great time but i was still studying law by back then i have a so i didn't know this uh, during my research and it's really cool but i got asked were you nervous when you were flying to meet him and interview him or you were already like seasoned uh pharrell um I, I was already a bit seasoned and I remember going over there with three or four other journalists for other big German mm -hmm. newspapers and publications and they were all like very cynical about it. Like they were all like, yeah, I'm going to fly here tomorrow and then I'm going to fly from there to Los Angeles to meet this guy and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't want to become like this ever in my life. I don't. Because I still, I was excited, you know, it was Pharrell Williams, like the, the dude from the Neptunes. Like for me, it was like, I still couldn't believe that I got paid to do this. You know, I think it was 2006 and I started writing 2002 or three or something. Seems like insane experience, especially from today's stand standpoint, where people very rarely would fly out for interviews. Like most stuff are done yeah, online. I mean, it's also a bit of a different, yeah, I'm sorry if to interrupt you, but it's also a bit of a different discussion today, of course. And that's not all, all only bad because we weren't really thinking about the ecological impact that our, our job had back then. You know, we were just flying every week somewhere, like didn't think about it in any way. Did did the degree in law ever help you with, with journalism? I We're going to talk a bit later about your... Um, your labels were the one you founded, so I assume that helped. 
But at that time of your life, did the degree in law help you or was more something you were doing uh, just because you you had just part of interest? I wouldn't say it helped me, but I also don't regret doing it. At the time when I was done with school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I always thought I wanted to write and I want to become a writer, but it didn't really occur to me as a real job at that time. So I, I was more like, okay, how can I actually mm-hmm. make money and sustain a family and stuff like that so i was thinking about doing business or law or medicine yeah, the more practical like thing i don't know why but it was yeah very practical for a 17 or 18 year old even though my parents were not pressuring me at all i mean they liked the fact that i was deciding to study law but it was completely my own decision it didn't have any to do with like passion though and i when i started after having finished my degrees and I started in a law firm those were lovely people there like I really liked the people that I worked with but the job wasn't really what I wanted to do and after a year or so I was still writing freelance on the side and after a year going to the law firm every other day the magazine was asking me if I wanted to step up as editor-in-chief because the current editor-in-chief was leaving and I didn't think about it a lot like I was like okay this is the moment you know you take this it. is uh now i can actually do what i really want to do what i'm supposed to do you spent five or six years at just um what was the biggest right. change especially when you took over as editor-in-chief did you already know okay that's what, like obviously the industry was changing and it's constantly changing do you have a plan in your head you're like okay i'm gonna take this opportunity i'm gonna change this and that at a time or we're just like going with it no i was pretty much just rolling with it i like the guy who did it before me, uh, um, a journalist, a former journalist named Davide Bortat. He's a, one of my closest friends to this very day. That's nice. And he, yeah, definitely. Um, and he, he kind of, he took juice. He took over in five years before the, the moment that we are talking about now. And he had already transformed juice into like a real magazine like it wasn't a fanzine anymore it was a real magazine was real writing great authors and i wasn't really trying to change anything about it more to just continue and try to not really lose the standard (laughs) because you've done so many things in your life and obviously you've created radio shows you work with red bull radio uh, obviously, as great uh, as Spotify. And now one of the things, actually one of the things we're going to be talking a lot about today is your newsletter, Zen Sounds, which uh, I really love. I've been following for a few years. I I used to practice my, to practice my German, uh, but of course you had some changes. Mm-hmm. But a very important question for me here is, how do you approach the curation perspective and how different is to curate and uh, maintain a print magazine a streaming platform playlist, and then a newsletter, which arguably is kind of living between in between because there is still a lot of storytelling. Do you have a, the same approach? or? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, first of all, there's a clear distinction between my work for the newsletter or, or the radio shows that I do because I, I've never done commercial radio, right? So I've never worked for one of those like big stations. I usually work for community radio or for internet radio like Byte FM. There at Dublab I'm doing now, for example. So the newsletter as well as these radio shows, I, the curation is quite easy. I'm just doing what I love. I'm just I'm just putting in there what's interesting to me right now. 
And of course, I'm trying to build a narrative like within one issue of the newsletter that kind of makes sense to me. But mainly it's just I write about the stuff that really interests me right now. Whether, whereas like working for a magazine, you think of an audience. You want to grow your audience. You want to uh, sell copies, mm -hmm. basically. So you have to think about a lot of commercial aspects, who to put on the cover, who gets like the bigger stories, who gets smaller stories, who doesn't get included. All these questions around, these are cura curation questions that you have to answer. And I think when you have this pressure of actually having to sell something, then you approach them totally differently. And with um, playlisting and my work at Spotify, it's similar because I don't, I didn't curate the playlists for myself. Those playlists were curated for a certain audience with, with this audience in mind. And you were looking at data every single day, looking at data and the audience spoke to you through that data. So you basically knew what was working and was, what wasn't working for them. And that's basically something that I don't really think about too much when doing the newsletter on my radio show. I totally understand about the print. I haven't done anything in print, if I have to be honest, mostly like digital. But do you still have the, um, the need of somehow educating audience despite the, the feedback you get uh, via data? And do you allow yourself as a, let's say, playlist curator to sometimes experiment with something that might be a bit on the fringe, but you want to give it a chance and see how people react? Yes, all the time, of course. I mean, if you wouldn't do that, I don't think you would do your job mm -hmm. really well as an editor, because then an algorithm could basically do the job <laughs> better than you. Okay, yeah. And but it's true. I mean... So, of course, you're trying to sandwich some stuff in between other music that has already proven to work well. So you try to feed the audience stuff that you think is really great. But at the same time, if it doesn't work, you need to be able to kill your darlings. <laughs> and that's, yeah, I mean, with the, with the freedom that I have at the radio show or at the, with the newsletter, it's very different, of course. I can... Even if people hate a certain record I'm talking, I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing about, I will not stop doing it because that's yeah, not important that's you. to me. You know, it's uh, it's it's me. It's I love it, and I really wanna I wanna find the people that love it as well. So yeah, talking about uh, Zen Sounds, if you haven't subscribed to this letter, regardless if you speak German or not, please do. It's honestly, I am very. It's English, it's English now. now. Yes, it's English news. now. Uh, I'm personally very mindful of the <laughs> newsletter I'm subscribed to just because there's a lot of noise. But yours is one I've consistently followed. And uh, especially as it's mostly on Saturday morning, it's my chill time. And uh, as I said, I try to read in German. Sometimes you can translate the other issues. So don't worry about it. I appreciate the the, the music you put on. And a lot of the features I've done on Stereofox, actually, it's music I've heard on the, on the newsletter. And... Uh, well, thank you so much. I really yeah. love to hear that. So the big news <laughs> is that in issue 35 uh, was the debut in English. What was the re what is your reason behind switching? Um, how did it, was it spontaneous decision? Did you think about it for some time? I did think about it for some time, and there were like even people from the outside um, talking to me about it for a while. People asking me, and. I think one of the main reasons, it's quite pragmatic, actually. I mean, I'm writing about a certain kind of music mostly right now. Like if we're talking about the contemporary yeah. stuff that I'm writing about, it's this ambient slash experimental slash electronic stuff. So that scene is quite international. And 
of course, there's a big part of that mm-hmm. scene in Berlin, but most of those people don't speak German <laughs> because they're from <laughs> all over the place. They're from yeah, and that's and that's totally fine. But I just I at a certain point I. When I started the newsletter, I wrote it in German. It felt very natural to me. I was, for my whole life, I was a writer and I always wrote in German. I published a book last year. Of course, I wrote it in German. But the language of the internet is English. And uh, the, the the language that connects that scene, if you will, I don't really see it as a scene. And I'm also not considering my part myself as a part of any scene. But those musicians, those artists, composers that I'm talking about, English is their language. The The song titles are English. Their, their records have English titles, usually, usually. So it's a very pragmatic reason. It's not really that I think about audience in terms of like, I want to grow my audience in this way. It will probably happen. And I've already seen a lot of subscriptions coming in um, since that day, um, which is great. Uh, I Of course, I want people to read what I'm writing about. But also for me, it was the chance to to kind of find my, find a new voice. Because in, in German, I've been writing for more than 20 years. And I sometimes I feel I've already said everything that I've wanted to say about music. And I've used all types of adjectives. And it, sometimes it, it's a bit, yeah, it just feels like I I don't have much to say anymore. And whether it's in English, all of a sudden I have a completely new vocabulary. Um, and there were a few people already approaching me that say they really like the tone that I have in English because it's it's quite different from the tone that I have in German, which is also interesting because what I experienced working at a global company for the last six years, I worked with people from all over the world, obviously, like I had a team where people were from all corners of the planet, basically, um, and talking to them in English and then hearing them speak their own native language. It always revealed a different part of their character, so to say. So that was also another aspect. A lot of the, I think, personally, uh, people often have issues with staying consistent and starting things and, you know, trying out, maybe stopping for a while. How how did you stay, when it comes to the newsletter, how do you stay consistent? Where do you find the motivation to do it every every two weeks, basically? Because that's more, more or less, the, even though I'm... I don't think you say specifically it's every second Saturday. I think you're very consistent with that. Is there like an inspiration or what motivates you? And yeah, how do you stay consistent with this? It's it's my passion. I love this. I, I would probably even do it more often if I didn't have the feeling that I would get on people's nerves. So I really want to do this. Like I'm I'm doing this either way. So it doesn't feel like a burden or something like that. So the one time where I I think this summer I made a break for two or three months, I guess. And that was due to the fact that I felt I didn't really want to do it anymore at this point because I had some other projects going on and I felt like if I would try to keep on doing it, it would become a burden. And I didn't really want that because the newsletter... Again, it's just something I love doing. It's my passion. And I don't want it to feel like I need to do it or something. Did moving out of Berlin help you with finding this balance? You you talk a lot about mental health and balance and uh, the deep listening course you did. As someone who has lived in Berlin for eight years and 
I think anyone who has spent some time there can can agree it's a great city, but there's sometimes it takes a toll on yeah, you. Yeah, I think so. Even though I still like I don't live in the countryside full time. I still have an apartment in Berlin and I go back and forth a lot. Um, you know, I'm not from the city. I'm I'm a country boy. Like I grew up in a very small village in northern Germany. When I was 18, I moved out to study in a city and then I moved around a lot. And the last 12 years of my life, I lived in Berlin. And I love Berlin for the fact that it's such a cultural hub. And there's just so, still so many great opportunities for artists and people mm -hmm. to to just do their thing, basically, and, and live their life like kind of an alternative lifestyle that's still going on in huge parts of the city. But as you as you said, it's it's also a quite stressful place. And I lived in Neukölln for the first eight years um, of my Berlin time, like near Hermannplatz. One of the most hectic. It's a, it's a pretty hectic. For those who know, I mean, it's a pretty hectic. It's it's also very inspiring. <laughs> so yes. there's a lot of mm, great food and great people and venues and everything but it's also it can it can be a bit stressful and for someone like me who really thrives of being in nature mm -hmm. i missed that part and now uh, that i have this place here in a very rural uh, area of northeastern germany quite near the polish border um, it's the complete opposite, and I really like moving between those worlds now. Yeah, and I would say that has helped my mental health at least, because I mean, during that pandemic, uh, I think it took a toll on all of us. Um, me specifically, I was on the verge of burning out, um, having this global position, like in a in a big tech company, leading my team as all over the world, and just working really irregular hours because of the different time zones and stuff and working from home uh, this this all this stuff was basically culminating in me just really wanting to find a new situation in my mm -hmm. life because it was just not working out for me anymore and this is why I also I left Spotify earlier this year um, to take a bit of a sabbatical over the mm -hmm. summer got this um yeah found this beautiful place out here which was kind of a ruin i would have to say um, okay so it's a lot of work i would imagine exactly so what what i did was basically taking a few months off to renovate the house work in the garden and all this kind of stuff and this uh filled me with a lot of inspiration and life again so yeah i started working again now I, you've probably read it i, I have a new job as a consultant for UMG. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about uh, the new... I can't say much about that, unfortunately, because I'm under NDA. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I I do editorial and content strategy consulting for them. Mm -hmm. Also do work on some other projects on the side as well, consulting a few people here and there. But it's, um, yeah, a lot less stressful than the last couple of years in my life were, I mean, in these tech companies. And that's pretty much a systemic thing. Yeah. It's uh, the growth is the main factor that everything is centering around. So, of course, like it's a very like a high performance, uh, performance driven uh, area where you work in. And that's fine for everyone. 
but you have to know for yourself like when is this working and when is this maybe not working anymore yeah when 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 do you have to put the the brake a bit mm -hmm. in, in the in the summer especially when you're renovating um and you are a bit out of the let's say fast pace growth uh industry did you still continue to listen and discover new music just for your own let's say pleasure happiness uh or you were really submerged into the offline life yeah it was very offline i i, I listened to a bit of balearic mm -hmm. beats and birdsong basically okay <laughs> field recordings <laughs> <laughs> yeah not even that like i would I was not listening to much music. I was outside mm -hmm. working all day um, in the sun and then having a simple meal and then going to bed, reading a book maybe. Very rewarding, I think. Yeah, kind of like trying to, to emulate like the Zen Buddhist monk yeah. lifestyle a bit. Is this, um, is this a summary you did the deep listening course you, you mentioned in Zen Sounds? Yes. Can, I started can you share that, a bit more about, like, I don't know how... Um, how much you can share, but I think it would be interesting, especially for people who are listening to the podcast, what it is, yeah. how did you find it? What is the philosophy? Yeah, so deep listening is a method developed by the late composer Pauline Oliveros. And I discovered her music when I was researching female composers from the 20th century. So she was one of the pioneers in electroacoustic composition. Um, she even like in the 60s, she composed great stuff, even though he's not as well known as some of her male peers. But that says more about the society that she lived in. She was a, a lesbian uh, free thinker, like a great spirit, just fascinating personality. Unfortunately, died in, I think, 2016. Uh, but she developed this method, deep listening, which is kind of like a, you could, could call it a listening meditation style. It combines elements of Buddhist meditation, um, mindful movement like Tai Chi or Qigong practices and performance art. So you gather in groups and you um, perform certain scores. So there's a, a lot of scores that Pauline wrote herself, but you can also write your own scores basically. And then you perform them together in a group um, or by yourself. So for me, this was taking me out of my comfort zone because I was always more a listener than a performer, even though the line blurs a bit when you do this practice, right? So what was really important for Pauline was the difference between hearing and listening. So you hear something, which is just the, like the acoustic sounds coming through your ear into your brain and being uh, processed, right? Um, listening is something deeper like this is something that you you are mindful about it you're actively turning towards the sounds and you're listening with your whole body basically not just your ears and this practice is really interesting as i said it's rooted in buddhist philosophy which is something that i've been studying for more than 10 years now um, Zen Buddhism is something that I feel drawn to specifically, but also Vipassana meditation and similar practices where you go on like silent retreats for a while. Yeah, I've been doing that for um, for some years. And so deep listening was kind of combining my love for music and, and, and performance with this Buddhist and philosophy strain. And this is why I thought it was really something um, enriching for me. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I a few years ago I, I read a book. Uh, it's called Deep Work, and it's uh, not exactly. Yeah, it actually one of the books that I I consistently if somebody asks me for a recommendation I give because it changed a lot of how I work, how I think about stuff, and uh, I personally cause myself. Um, I tend to be very multitasking, which sometimes can be good, but at the end of the day, it's first it's brain it drains my brain, and uh, I realized I take on less and less um, long-term important projects as opposed to trying to do 20 small tasks. And after, I don't know about, I was curious how did basically doing this course impact you the way you listen to music? Because what, what how it, I have to say that deep work, even though it mostly changed my working habits, it also changed my approach to listening to albums. And I would say listening to uh, collecting records, I still do now for a few years. One of the reasons is I love the fact that I can put the record on and I'm not distracted to skip song slide left and right so did did this course change how you perceive and um, experience uh, especially albums yes yes i i mean i've been uh, pretty much someone who skipped a lot and um i've been listening to hundreds of songs as a spotify editor you have to, to listen to mm-hmm. somewhere between 500 and 1500 songs per week just for your daily work and of course you don't listen to them from front to back you listen to the first 30 seconds and you skip somewhere and try to find the hook. And then so for my work, I've been doing that in my private life as a, as a music lover and listener. I always loved albums, like really bodies of work and trying to capture them from front to back. And that goes back to my childhood, like sitting in my room with a new record that I maybe bought or got somewhere reading through the credits and listening to like the all the songs from front to back even the songs i didn't like at first i still sat through them i uh, looked at the lyrics maybe or tried to find something in them and i think that's a practice that's a bit lost um in this era and i i miss it and i i think it's good to really take your time to focus your attention on 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 one thing and uh just do it. Just sit down, listen to an album. Like, who does that these days? Not many people I know are act- actively doing it. I try to do it all the time. And deep listening, the course, is just more like a training. It's training mm-hmm. for your attention, for your attention span, which is fragmented. With everyone, like every one of us, we're all like have social media and smartphones and Netflix and different media open all the time and 100 tabs on your browser and blah, blah, blah. I'm really trying to focus. Um, And that book that you read, The Deep Workbook by Cal Newport, this is a very inspirational book to me as well. He has also written another book about digital minimalism. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great one. It's, It's really good. And his newest is called A World Without Email. Title says it all. It's... um. It's a bit of a a movement, I would say, against the dominating idea of how to consume music and arts. And even the word consume in that context is something that's bothering me a bit because immersing myself in a body of work or a piece of art is not consuming. It's, it's more than that, right? 
So, of course, there's music that you listen to for pure entertainment purposes, and that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think it's something gets lost if we all just live in our bubbles where we get like the personalized recommendations and the algorithm is putting everything together for us to exactly how we like it. Because as a society, we need to discuss um, what is important. What, what is like, where can we uh, put ourselves in a relation to each other? And that was when we spoke earlier about specs and similar magazines, when you were the album of the month in specs, even if you didn't like the record, you should have like some kind of opinion about it or you should have listened to it at least because other than that, you wouldn't be able to follow cultural discourse and to interact with other people. And that's what it's about. Community interacting with other people, not just being in your own tunnel where this is what you like and this is... I don't know. It, it, it There's just something, um, yeah, getting lost. Mm-hmm. Do you think the trend, that this trend of basically our, the attention economy, the fact that we're constantly being pulled left and right, do you think that trend is going to reverse? Because at the end of the day, and we all have read the article, the, uh, the eight seconds hook song, and there was somebody recently posted, it, like, uh, I don't know where, it was, on a platform, like a video of a concert, and then the artist sings a song and everybody sings the chorus. And then after the f- chorus is finished, he just continues with the verse. And then just because the chorus is what's popular on whatever social media platform is hype now, nobody sings. And uh, like there, at some point, we're going to hit the bottom, right? There is. Do you think that's ever going to bounce back? Like, um, and No. No. Okay. I I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a cultural cynic about that. I, okay. I don't think that's gonna gonna turn back. I, I think the mainstream is on a race to the bottom right now. Mm-hmm. But I see kind of like a um, a strong anti movement in the underground. You know, I see people because they are not okay with that, just trying to do other practices and mm-hmm. trying to. And and that's important to me. I don't really think that those people will take over the mainstream at one point and all those like TikTok music listeners will all of a sudden start appreciating the album as an art form again. Mm-hmm. But it, maybe that's not even necessary to me. I, I just need to know that there's a few other people outside who still care. Okay. Still very hopeful, even though you say you're a cynic. <laughs> um, speaking of... Uh, like this whole album singles culture obviously uh you have you so first you started as a senior editor for gca at spotify and then you moved as a global lead interim and then global lead for the editors um as a writer yourself that's a we have a big discord community of producers especially in the jazz chill hop jazz hop scene do you have any tips on um trying to build a actual audience as a beat maker and when it comes to one building your story and storyline and two writing your pitches do you have any tips you would you can share with with our audience so i don't have the secret sauce <laughs> or the secret <laughs> recipe like how to get successful on spotify one on one i think that's also something that the company tries to explain through like it's all the like the artists at spotify website and all that mm-hmm. stuff so i don't really get into that right now the one thing I really want to say from my experience is if you're an artist or a producer, don't rely on 
playlist placements too much. Like I, I know it's it's hard, and there's al almost it seems like there's no other way to get noticed. But a career that's only built on editorial placements on a certain streaming service is not a career. It's not a career, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's not. It's definitely not because it can change from one day to the next and it's like playing lotto basically yeah. at this point like the number that was being thrown around was 100,000 songs are being uploaded right now to spotify every day right um so of course not all of them are getting pitched but a lot of them are and within that genre that you're talking about which i would still call like lo-fi beats or whatever mm -hmm. um it's it's a lot. It's a, a hell of a ton of music that's coming out every week. And a lot of it is fine, but quite, how would you say that? I don't want to, it's, it's not bad, but it's not really recognizable. Mm. Like it's not exceptional. It's not exceptional. It's not, uh, you hear it and you know, this is, this has to be this certain artist. It's more like, yeah, this is a fine lo-fi jazzy beat. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. I, I have nothing against it. And that's also what the success of that music on playlists is about. It's a lot of like lean back listening, mm -hmm. people using it as a soundtrack for their house course or, their, you know, the study, chill, blah, blah, blah. Um, and not really going too deep into, okay, I like this beat maker. This is the song that I love the most out of this playlist. So I'm going to research what those people did more. This is not really happening a lot. Mm -hmm. So one thing I can say to beat makers and producers, hope for a playlist placement, but try to build your career like not depending it. on that at yeah. all. Just do your own thing. Build your brand just as any artist, basically. Build your brand... Build it offline, build it online through your own channels. Try to um, do the greatest music that you can do, of course. Um, but spe specifically in that scene, I've, I've seen that very closely because I've curated a few of those lists. Um, so if you use most of your time of your day to try to find Spotify editors on Instagram and chase them, I don't think that's the best use of your time as an artist. I have to say, maybe not very popular opinion, <laughs> but um, because we recently finished our best our 50 albums of uh, 2022. And we, even though, of course, there is no way we can leave out some commercial records, the team and I specifically ventured into trying to create a list that's still a bit on the on the fringe, but still like interesting listens regardless of amount of streams. And uh, even though besides creator, we are label and 50% of music is beats. I had a hard time remembering, do I have a favorite beat album? And that's when I realized it's, it's all about the singles. And I had a few discussions with artists who reach out to me personally, like, okay, singles are great. Edit editorials are great. How can I be here in five years? And that's when I, we start discussing, like you need conceptual work, story behind it. Because if you drop a single every two weeks, really, I I had a hard time putting two beat albums in my collection, and that's half the music I listen to. So that kind of aligns with um, with what you're saying. But it's obviously as someone who's been around for such a long time, it's always good to have your input and and how you you see things. Yeah, 
I, I would very much agree with you. Um, and I also think because of the ubiquitous nature of that music right now, if you, I mean, if that's the music you want to make from the bottom of your heart, then please don't change it. But mm. I, I think some of the people in that game are doing it because they think there's money to be made. They think there's playlist placements to be to to be had, um, and I think that's the wrong motivation. To be honest with you, mm -hmm. like I don't want to, like, yeah, do your hustle, get your money. It's all fine, but it's still art. Like it's it's music. It's it's supposed to make you feel something. A lot of the stuff that I've been listening to in that genre, the last few years, I don't feel anything, mm -hmm. and that's because the people that make it don't make it. Some of those people, I'm not talking about all of them, but some of them don't make it with a passion or emotion in or it, heart. but just of a rational argument mm -hmm. because they think it might be popular. It might be something that they will be able to make money with. And then, again, that's fine. But then we're in a different realm. Then, then that's pop music, basically. Yeah. Then we're in that realm where you can also go and write radio pop songs or dance pop or something like that. So that's the same... We're in that same area, but the lo-fi, like the roots of that music, it's still underground culture, right? So there's a difference. Speaking of which, as a as a German and someone who's been in the industry for such a long time, we I have we have to talk about. I had I had a, a podcast episode with DJ Kitsune, and we discussed the reason why German hip hop scene is so strong because uh, we started from. Um, lo-fi hip-hop and the fact that there is a lot of in if you divide the beat scene worldwide in within europe i would say per capita i think there is germany is one of the leading places in on when it comes to beat makers not just lo-fi but future beats chill hop even more jazz stuff and i think that's very very much connected to the the, the strength of the german hip-hop scene what it, what yeah. is your take on that why do you think that is where like If we have to take, um, especially our listeners who are not necessarily from Germany, in the 90s and 80s, where, how did it all start and what is your comment <laughs> on that? Yeah, um, I'm trying to keep it short. I mean, I've, I've been around for a lot of that journey. Um, even though I only discovered German rap in like early to mid 90s and it's been around since the late 80s. Um, so there was a generation before me, um, but I have to mention like, People, I think it started in Germany with like the the big movies, Wild Style, uh, Beat Street, and similar. Like I think most of those came out in '83, '84. So when those were shown in the German cinemas, German youth were kind of infected with that breakdance thing, and then they started doing the music, and then it died down because it was more of a trend, and then it came back by the late '80s, and then it didn't go away. And there were waves since then, uh, a lot of waves that I saw. It was more popular. There was a time in the late 90s when hip-hop was already mainstream in Germany. People forget about that. There was like uh, the, the German charts were already full of hip-hop in the late 90s. It was a different kind of hip-hop than the one that's out right now, of course, but still was hip-hop influenced by American rap, British rap, French rap. Um, so there's, a, I think, um, yeah, a pretty deep um, history of German hip-hop. And then in the early 2000s, a few beat makers who were coming out of that community started doing instrumental beats. And instrumental beats, of course, were already a thing. In the 90s, you had Mowax, Ninja Tune, 
Kruder and Dorfmeister, all these people were doing that. And then the hip-hop guys in the early 2000s, I remember talking to Zuf Daddy and Brank Sinatra and Dexter, the people that were like the first German beat makers to me that were doing the instrumental thing. Um, and most of them said, I didn't really want to work with rappers anymore. Like either because they felt it was so hard to get them like to to play to get beat placements on rappers records so they did basically put it out as their own project and others were also like oh my music is already so much is happening there already i don't really need a rapper on there um so out of that developed um a very lively beat community in germany and that had a a heyday in the 2000s until I, think, I don't know if in 2010 or 2011 there was a, a beat barbecue in Cologne. And I remember being there. Um, it was um, initiated by my man Olski from Melting Pot Music. Um, Legends. Yeah, legend, Legends. Legendary label. Um, and there were like 1,500 people in the Club Bahnhof Ehrenfeld listening to people standing on stage just playing beats. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was crazy. So... And that scene was something that I was following very closely, was very dear to my heart. I know all of the producers personally. A lot of them are my friends. And um, I also followed that scene when I was at Juice at the Hip Hop magazine, and I covered it from a journalistic perspective a lot. So now fast forward to 2016, I started at Spotify, and I see this global phenomenon starting with the, with the jazzy lo-fi type beats which to me bore a lot of resemblance to what dexter and those people had already done mm -hmm. so i just joined like, i basically connected the dots and saw that there was it was a continuation of that a little bit and all of a sudden like producers came from all corners of, of the world at least that was like my uh, how i perceived it and i followed that and i curated a lot of like lists and um, so connected also the German scene because that was our job at Spotify yeah. representing the German artist community in editorial mm -hmm. so of course um, I saw that something was happening and I was trying to um, bring my community back into this so yeah that's a strong history for those who are listening uh, to put things into timeline because I followed very closely the history of editorial emergence. When you joined um, Spotify 2016, right? That's just a few years after Spotify bought Tunigo. And I think for exactly. me, that's the birth of editorial and curation. So you were still yeah. early on those days. Yeah, that's true. I, th I don't think Spotify had playlists before Tunigo, right? No, I actually, I, I was at university around that time. So I had to write a research paper. And I chose to analyze uh, those things. So that's why I know this yeah. history. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, a lot of my colleagues, like former colleagues, uh, were people that were working at Tunigo. And when Spotify bought Tunigo, they were just yeah. uh, becoming ed editors at Spotify. Yeah, It's really, it's, uh, really cool you mentioned Surf Daddy because I was at the la uh, last uh, Beat Geeks in Monarch in uh, November. So I had a chance wow. to, to see him playing a set. And then there were some B-boys who came to the club and they, they were dancing and uh, uh, actually a G Berliner friend of mine who is uh, born and raised in Berlin and he's like oh where are you taking me blah, blah, blah. and he was like wow man this is so cool I haven't been to a party like this 
Um, so it was really cool. And like Melting Pot, we talk with them from time to time uh, as we cover some of their stuff. So it's really nice to know these people are still here. They make um, like yes. amazing music beats. And uh, I have a lot of respect yeah. for people who who are not here for the trend, but have been and continue to do. Look, that's that's the important thing to me. Those guys were there before the whole hype started, like Zichtek, Sod, NPM, yes. Jakarta, um, all those labels in Germany and the, the beat makers, they, they did that already. So this is why it was important for me. Of course, like if like uh, a 17-year-old producer from Finland makes a great beat, then it should, of course, be represented in, in, a, in one of the big playlists. But how can we do this without the originators of that culture? Like even if a lot of like the young lo-fi people don't really see that connection anymore, mm -hmm. it's something that, I think there is a lot of education to be done. Like when I read through forums and sometimes people send me certain links to like Reddit threads or whatever where people are discussing lo-fi stuff. And um, I feel there's a lot of background missing for some yeah, of the absolutely. younger producers. So they need to do their research. This is a culture. Like this is not lo-fi as a, as a white uh, culture that you can just like go into and say, hey, I like these jazzy beats and I'm going to do this. You need to do your research. You need to look up where does this come from? How, where did hip hop originate from? Who are the people who, who did that before you are trying to make your playlist money with it, right? Yeah. So that's quite important to me. Um, uh, because there was, of course, you know that you are in that space and there's a lot of people who think that they're entitled to get playlist placement, they get they have to get money with it, blah blah blah. But I think hip hop is a culture where you have to pay your dues as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and you gotta earn your stripes, you know. So earn your stripes, sit back, do your thing, and the, the respect will come. Like you have to give respect to get respect. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, really, it's really nice to talk with you about the, the scene. Uh, obviously, for we are relatively young label in the grand scheme of things, like four years, but we cover beats since Sterofox is turning 10 years so I know Jakarta for example and every once in a while I go to the office and I get a chat to the guys and it's really cool it's really inspiring um, and sometimes people are talking about the fact that music blogs are dying but I feel the need to continue writing and documenting stuff for those who want to read which brings me to naturally to, to my question and I'm biased but what do you, do you think music blogs will survive? Is there a place for, for music blocks? Yes, I, I think so. I, I mean, of course, like the, the heydays of the blogosphere, we're talking about like the late 2000s, maybe early 2010s. It's not like that anymore. That's very clear. And I don't think it will come back. But blogs are still, for me, they're still important. I look at blogs to find music um, sometimes, even though people tend to look at blogs more through social media now. Mm -hmm. So they probably won't revisit a blog every so often. And that's why I really like the newsletter idea, because mm -hmm. people just get it in their inbox. And they they will be nudged a little bit. To look There's no algorithm that controls what you see, whether you see it or not. Exactly. That's what I like about this, um, because I'm pretty much... a. Uh, um, against the idea of social media as it stands and uh, I've also deleted most of my social media accounts now I have an 
Instagram account again for Zen Sounds, but that's not like a personal account mm -hmm. for me. That's more like a for the entity, for the newsletter, because, yeah, I mean, we're living in a day and age where it's almost impossible to take part in the cultural discourse without it. Even if I just want to ask an, inter an artist for an interview. Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing is to just drop in an Instagram message. Yeah. And if I don't have that possibility, it's hard. But I lived for three and a half years without an Instagram account and I did just fine. And I don't have Facebook or Twitter or anything else. Um, so I back to your question, I'm railing off a bit <laughs> because social media is just a topic. <laughs> it's always, a beast on its own. <laughs> it, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I still think blogs... Maybe we shouldn't call it that. Blogs feels like something that's a bit old and it's a bit journals, out of date. Publications? Maybe journals or, yeah, whatever. It's just m m not even magazines because that sounds so, so really old, like so official. <laughs> like, uh, But maybe we'll find another word for it and then it's, it's, it's fine again. I don't think that people... Um, are not interested in context or reading about uh, people's opinions, feelings about music and art and culture. I think that's still relevant. Because I have one argument, when you speak to people about the decline of music journalism, basically, then there's always this argument of, yeah, why would we need music journalism anymore? People can just follow the artists on social media and they get all the information they need. And I pretty much disagree with that because... Um, yes, it's a very powerful tool for the artists themselves. For me as a fan and as a listener, I don't get all the information I need. And cultural uh, discussion is not something that the artists can do among themselves. They, they pretty much need um, us as a, mm, yeah, I don't know. Mediator as a, kind? Yeah, not, something. Not exactly. Yeah, what. But yeah, similar. I, I, I just think um, we... we As music journalists, music writers, music nerds, <laughs> we are part of that culture and that discussion. And we need to find, um, yeah, the right ways of speaking to people for this specific day and age. And, and that's not to say that everybody needs to go on TikTok and do TikTok reviews now. Like, I'm, I still think the written word is holy. <laughs> yes. We're, for now, we're sticking to that as well. Yeah. Would... Um, Was, would you do, uh, like would you sacrifice what you love let's say if today's medium is TikTok just for the sake of being able to share your your thoughts I assume the answer is no but would you abide to the today's rules or it's more like you do you and whatever happens yeah I've thought about that a lot I mean, if I knew that all the people that I want to reach are on TikTok now, and this is the way that they speak to each other, then I would probably consider doing it as well. But I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that there's still people out there who don't want to be on TikTok all day, and they don't want these eight-second snippets of music, and they don't, they want to engage more deeply with it, and they want to read about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not, again, that's not, the, I'm not, it's not the mainstream, it's not the big masses, but that's also not, I've never felt part of that. I, I always identified with um, left field, underground subculture, <laughs> as corny as it sounds, but that's how I grew up. Mm -hmm. Even if we're talking about genres, 
I never really care too much about genres. I, I love music from all sorts of different genres. But the one thing I can't really uh, I can't really wrap my head around is, is mainstream pop and dance music. Like basically everything that's on top 40 radio <laughs> is something that I don't personally care about too much. So I don't buy into this logic where it's all about popularity, it's all about the most streams, the most readers, the biggest audience. It's just not what I'm... I'm more looking for a small, nice community of people who are like-minded and love the stuff that I do. This this pretty much reminds me of the the a thousand true fans rule, or is was it? Sometimes it's a hundred. Like uh, my background is in actually like more software, like tech and software companies I've worked for, and they always say find a hundred people who are willing to pay for your product or your hundred true fans, and that's all you need. So it's kind of a you can make a parallel with this. I I believe. Music is like niche music and, and building communities, smaller communities is the future. And I think in those niche communities, that's where, and of course, the, you everybody is responsible for themselves, but like I think we kind of think alike is you're going to find those people who care about what you have to say as it doesn't need to be half a million people, right? As you say, you need like a, your audience um, and you can nurture and grow it from, from, from there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go on world tour and you want to buy a Ferrari and, and like expensive watches or whatever, and that's your thing, again, I'm not judging that. Yeah, absolutely. Then you will probably go, need to go down that road. But that's not my route. And that's also not the route of most of the artists that uh, make the music that I'm talking about. I mean, I've, I've noticed that I've not deliberately left out major label products for my newsletter, but I've... Like I don't think I've ever written about a single record that was released on a major record label. Mm -hmm. That's just because it's not interesting to me. Like it's it's not coming out there. <laughs> it's not they don't have that because it's not appealing to as many people as they would need to make their business model work for this. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with newsletters basically. I have a few hundred subscribers and that's great. I love that. Um, of course, I love every single one who, who comes on board, but it's also not necessary to grow like crazy. Why? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm I'm not doing this for commercial reasons. I'm not doing any advertising, no sponsoring, no paid subscriptions. Um, I just want to find those people, basically. I, since we're in the... Uh newsletter topic i love the end of year's chart and the people you invited was it mostly friends or did you carefully select the people or was like easy to because they're very diverse you have label founders you have uh recording artists um educators lecturers it was very i would say and also even the selection is very diverse even though it's in specific i would say non-commercial albums but you can see different people's opinion and you can go in venture into different genres was it easy yeah. to, to get those people mm. it was so i wanted to do this and i looked at my network basically and i looked at which people from those network might have something to com contribute that 
works within the context of the newsletter. I mean, it doesn't make sense if I ask a friend of mine who's a music journalist who will send in 10 rap records because he loves rap. And I love rap as well, but that doesn't work with this newsletter, right? It's not a rap newsletter. It's ambient experimental. So it has this frame. And I was looking at all those people that I knew. Most of them are friends or people I've interviewed, people I've somehow had a direct contact with. So I would just reach out to them and ask. And if I would cold email someone, they will probably not even answer. So it's people I've already known, people I've worked with in the past, people who I've talked to and who would, yeah, <laughs> who would not say no or just ignore my email. Because I mean, again, it's a small newsletter. It's not like you don't get anything off of this. Like you don't, you don't get popular or anything. It's just, you can be part of this if you'd like to, but you still have to sit down and make this list and it's a bit of work. And so, yeah, it was a mix of friends and, and, and people I've worked with in the past year since I started the newsletter. It's a curational task. Again, I think my, like, if you would ask me what, what my main thing in my life is it's curation like it's writing and curation and curation is even the part when i was an editor at a magazine that was curation because you're not i wrote maybe one story per magazine but the main thing was curating the whole thing curating the the freelance writers the photographers all this so yeah the year-end thing i always like lists you know i'm a music journalist old school like i like lists mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't even need to be ranked about, but I just love to read what people listen to, what people like, genuinely like. Yeah. I love it. For, uh, for those who wonder, that's in issue number 35. So yeah. even if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can just go back in Substack and uh, read the previous editions. So yeah. that is in uh, number 35. All the old issues are on the website, on the archive yeah. to read. But yeah, until 34, they're all in German. So you need a google translate them or whatever <laughs> it works trust me from personal experience <laughs> um is, is there something like do you have any plans for the newsletter or any project in next year that you're already excited about that you're planning or you can share something right now no, i'm not just right now i'm really excited about the uh, about the reactions that i got from this announcement going English now so just today I saw that Music Journalism Insider a newsletter that I've been reading for a while they took my publication and uh, yeah just posted the link to it so I get a lot of great feedback a lot of subscribers coming board so that's exciting to me right now I don't have any specific plans what I want to do is I'll make it all a bit more visually appear appealing <laughs> so I'm uh, right now I'm trying to work with a designer a graphic designer to yeah, basically design a logo and make mm -hmm. it all a bit more cohesive. I've done all that myself in the past and it looks terrible. I know that, but um, we're going to get there. And the radio show will go English as well. Um, so Dub Lab radio show in English from January on. I have a lot more interviews to do. I guess a few people that I really want to get at. And um, some of them have already um, expressed their willingness to be my guest others i'm still working on um so let's see like with the growing popularity maybe that's one of the factors why you need to grow an audience because then people will yeah they will 
say yes to interviews more often. But yeah, no big announcements mm-hmm. to be made right now. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on the on the redesign yeah. change. Yeah. We're gonna put the link to the newsletter and all the websites in the podcast description. Great, thank you. My last question again to take a step out of the music industry. If you have six months of nothing to do and you can learn one skill or one or something, what would that be? Like no no responsibilities, complete freedom. Can be music related, can be real life skill. So right now I would probably learn um a music production software. Okay. Something like you mentioned Ableton earlier. If I would love to learn how to use something like that. Um, maybe learn a bit of basic music production skills, playing a bit of piano, synth. Just uh, because, you know, the, the deep listening course, it, for the first time in my life, I got on the performative side of things. Um, and it kind of, yeah, I would love to do more, more of that. Mm-hmm. And I would love to do my own little experience with a bit of field recordings, playing a, playing a little bit. I think that would be one thing. But if you would ask me tomorrow, I would probably say learning Japanese or... <laughs> um, yeah, the last six months I learned so much about house, co- like craft, basically. Ah, yeah. handy kind of stuff. Handy stuff. I never was that person, you know, but w- w- having like an old house now, I laid, the f- laid down the flooring. I We did all the walls, like not only painted them, but yeah, you know, we really did some construction work here. <laughs> and there's YouTube videos for everything. That's the good thing about this. So That is true. One could learn literally everything these days, pretty much, with the, with the power of the internet. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being the podcast. I there's also so many questions left, but I hope that's not the la- the first the that's not the last time we speak. It was a pleasure having you as a guest. Um, Thank you so much for the invitation. It was um, a very pleasurable experience being interviewed by you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Stefan. A quick reminder, your support goes the long way. Any share and like and rate of your podcast platform helps us immensely. If you have comments or have suggestions for the podcast, just follow us on Instagram at WeAreStereoFox. Stay tuned for more episodes next month.